Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. On today's program, we're starting week two of our current series, The King Goes Public. As Dr. Neufeld digs even deeper into the specific temptations that Jesus faced and how he conquered them. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, as we join Dr. Neufeld. I want to read to you a quote from someone you've probably heard about. This man said, Fame is a vapor, popularity is an accident, and money takes wings. The only thing that endures is character. Now, those words were apparently one set of all people by O.J. Simpson. I mention this not to heap one more word of condemnation on O.J. Simpson. I mention this because it's so much easier to talk a good game than to live it when horrible temptations surround you. More than one man or woman has walked onto the stage of fame and popularity only to have their worst weaknesses and propensities to evil exposed. If you've never been in the public eye, you will never know that every temptation and every weakness is only magnified and it can become monstrous. We're halfway through a series entitled The King Goes Public. We've noticed how God prepared Jesus for his walk onto a very large stage. His preaching would gather huge crowds. People would witness miracles that were astonishing. The blind would see, the dead would rise, and demons would flee. But Jesus' enemies would grow in number as well, and they would seek his undoing. Many would try to trap him in his words, and many would look for some hint of wrongdoing, some hint of scandal, or failing that, some mistake in what he said, or some misstep, anything that would destroy him and his reputation. In the end, the success of his ministry to become the sin-bearer of the human race was what was at stake. And so God was preparing his own dear son. John the Baptist was setting the stage, and Jesus was waiting in the sidelines for his grand entry, learning the lessons that come from humble obscurity and confident trust in his Father. And then came his baptism, in which he humbles himself even further. And then, before Jesus steps onto the stage of his public ministry, the Holy Spirit drives him into the Judean wilderness to be by himself and to allow Satan to tempt him. When Satan arrives, he comes with three temptations. They're designed to subvert Jesus before he even steps onto the stage. But we may read this account and wonder why these temptations. And in the case of the first temptation, we may even wonder why it's a sin at all. And in the case of the second, we may see it as a temptation to do a bit of grandstanding, but it also looks less serious than the big red stop signs like adultery or using his ministry to become rich. It seems like it's a minor matter. But as we're going to see, Satan's temptations are designed to make Jesus into an evil Messiah and an evil king. And if we're careful to observe the temptations for what they are, we may find that they are our worst temptations as well. Let's read the three temptations carefully, one at a time. The first is found in Matthew 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Students of the Bible have often been puzzled by the first temptation. What does it mean and why is it wrong? If you've ever fasted over an extensive period of time, you'll know that you're only hungry for the first several days, and then the hunger subsides, and you feel no hunger at all. But when it returns, as in this case, at the end of 40 days, it's because your body is beginning to feed on itself. Here, hunger is the sign of starvation and that you're at the brink of death. So what would be wrong in turning the stones to bread? No one is watching anyway. 
If food was not readily available, which we assume to be the case, then it would seem that to turn the rocks into bread would hardly be selfish, for it would merely be an act of preserving his life. He has the power as the Son of God to do it, so why not? This doesn't seem to be an enticement to do evil at all. But Jesus thinks there's something deeply perverse about this. Remember, he's been meditating on the book of Deuteronomy, and he sees instantly that this is vile. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But what does that mean? Let's agree that every verse that Jesus quotes is shorthand for the wider context out of which each verse comes. So what's in Deuteronomy 8? That is the entire chapter. Well, that chapter is all about the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness and why God led them there and what they're supposed to learn from that experience. So I'm quoting now from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. There it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, just like Israel, who was led into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus knew he was led into the wilderness for 40 days. And just like Israel, Jesus was using this time to learn complete dependence on God. Israel was supposed to learn in their experience with manna that unless God spoke and the manna appeared, they would starve. And now Satan was saying to Jesus, if you're the son of God, just perform the same miracle. If you don't, you'll starve. What is at the heart of this matter is the kind of son that Jesus will be. Will he, as he said in John 5:19, do nothing unless the father direct him? Or would he act independently? on his own initiative, without waiting for the direction of the Father. And as his insides ached from hunger, at the point of starvation, he saw what was before him. This was much larger than performing a miracle. Will he act on his own, or will he await the instructions from his Father? Jesus would also have seen that throughout the next years of his ministry, he would be faced with this very same question over and over again. You know, we have a similar temptation, which I think to be the first of the three greatest temptations you and I will ever face. No, it's not one of those red stop signs I mentioned earlier. It's much greater. Now, here now is the first temptation. Be impatient with God and take matters into your own hands. I wonder how many of us remember the incident that led to King Saul's demise. The prophet Samuel had commanded Saul to devote to destruction all of Amalek, which included their sheep and oxen, which were to have been sacrificed to the Lord. But Saul could see that his men were demanding a reward for the battle that they had won. And seeing the desire and the demands of his strongest military commanders, Saul feared the people. Now that sounds like weakness, but is it really a major sin? Well, Yes, it is. It shows he feared the people more than he feared God. So let me try to rephrase that. Because of immediate concerns, King Saul became a disobedient man. On more than one occasion, I've had conversations with young Christian women who have been dating non-Christian men. The Bible is quite clear on this matter. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? 
And the response back is often like this. A young woman will say, but I'm not getting any younger, and there are a shortage of Christian men. If I don't marry him, there'll be very few opportunities for me in the future, especially if I want children. And what's more, I might be able to win him to Christ. See, the rationalizations just go on and on. And what we're really saying is, God, I'm impatient with you, and I find that I must take matters into my own hands. But please let me not pick on young women. I mean, think of the pastor who's intimidated to preach God's word on an unpopular subject because of pressure. God, if I don't take matters into my own hands, what will become of me? See, the examples could go on and on. Unless Jesus had won this battle with temptation, he would have never gone to the cross. He would have put his own needs ahead of the Father's perfect timing. Instead of resting his life into the Father's plans, he would have constructed his own as he went along. So the lesson is simple. Trust in God, even when it comes to your daily bread. Trust Him in the most basic needs you have, and you will find that you can trust Him in everything else. Don't trust Him in your most basic needs, and you'll find that you can hardly trust Him in anything at all. See, here's the question. Aren't God's words what you need the most? You really don't live on bread alone. The bread that you live on came into existence by the Word of God. What you need is God's Word more than anything. Well, I wish I had the ability to get each of us to believe that reading your Bible and prayer is more valuable than a paycheck or food in your mouth or a roof over your head. You need the Word of God. Everything is dependent on that. And in that, we learn to take God and His leadership as our lead. We will learn to follow. The question is always a question of trust. Whom will you trust, God or self? And in hundreds of ways, every day, every week, every year, all of us are responding to this as one of the greatest temptations we have ever faced. When we come back, we're going to consider the other two temptations that Christ faced. It's amazing how much we can take away from examining this first temptation that Jesus faced. The temptation to take matters into our own hands outside of God's command even when it seemed perfectly justifiable to do so. But this is also one of the greatest temptations each of us face daily, and one we often fail to see it for what it is. When we return after this short break, Dr. Neufeld will look at how Satan tried to tempt Jesus in two other major areas, and what we can learn from Jesus' response. So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today, there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s. And since then, generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
Matthew 4, 5-6 reads, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this truly is an amazing event. No doubt Satan leaves Jesus standing on the wall of the southeast corner of the temple. See, from there, the temple wall joined the outside of the city wall and went down past the edge of the city, down into the Kidron Valley. It would have been a height of at least 300 feet, like standing at the top of a 30-story building with your feet looking over the edge. And at this dizzying height, Satan whispers into his ear, throw yourself down. And then, amazingly enough, he has scripture to back it up. Psalm 91, he will command his angels. He says, since at your baptism, the Father identified you as his son, and you're committed to trusting him, I accept that, but let's find out if that's a good and reasonable thing to do. Let's test your assumption in ministry. Let's see if, according to the promise of scripture, God does what he promised he will do. Find out for yourself if he's worthy of trust. You say you trust him, well then, let's settle the matter once and for all. Now that, on one hand, seems reasonable. But Jesus has been meditating on Deuteronomy. And now he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But let's read the entire verse from Deuteronomy 6, 16. There it reads, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, how many of you remember what happened at Massa? It's described in Exodus 17, verse 2 to 7. There the Israelites were lacking water, and they said, Maybe God has brought us out of Egypt into this wilderness to kill us by thirst. And so, even after seeing the plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea crossing, the pillar of cloud over them by day, and the pillar of fire by night, the daily miracle of manna, they still said, But how do we know what he truly intends? Maybe he doesn't love us at all. Maybe he wants to kill us. We need a special miracle to settle this matter. Otherwise, our minds will never be at ease. Now, in the days that lay ahead for Jesus, this kind of knowledge might come in rather handy. What lay before Jesus were things like persecution, slander, suffering, misunderstanding, and then, of course, finally and ultimately the cross. You better settle this matter. Does God actually view me as his beloved son? Let's make him declare himself. And here's the second and the greatest temptation that we ever face. Temptation two is this. Make God prove he's worthy of trust. But here's a question. Has God not already proved that? Do you remember what was said to the rich man in hell who wanted a miracle, someone rising from the dead and confronting his brothers? Abraham said to him, they already have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe Moses, they will not believe if someone rises from the dead. And you, my dear listener, you have a Bible which is already attested as God's word. You have the cross. You have the empty tomb. You have an overwhelming body of evidence regarding God's intention toward you. What do you think sustained Jesus in his hours of trial? As he hung on a cross, what gave him the assurance that he was the object of the Father's delight? See, the person who demands at every point, God, show me you still love me, is the person who will never be satisfied. There'll never be enough evidence for you. There's always another moment in which you demand that God prove himself, and in that you're saying, God, in spite of your promise, I'm still not sure I can trust you. One word is not enough. 
Neither are two words or a hundred or a thousand or a book of your own written by the Spirit of God. I need more evidence today. See, here's the question. Is not the problem the problem in your heart? That was the problem with Israel in the wilderness. It was not a lack of evidence. It was a heart attitude. And Jesus recognized this for what it was. If God had spoken once, it was enough. If God had said, you are my beloved son, it was enough. And if the Father tells us today that we've been adopted into his family as sons and daughters, hear me, it's enough. Let's move to our last temptation. Matthew 4, 8 and 9 says, And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, at this point, all subtlety is gone. Satan says, So you're going to trust God. But think for a moment. You and I know you are called upon by God to rule the nations. But God is also calling you to humility and suffering and radical obedience and the hatred of a jeering crowd. I offer you also the opportunity to rule the nations, but I will remove from you the bitter pill that the Father demands. Just abandon the cross, embrace your role as a Messiah today, and begin to rule. So here now is temptation number three. Become an idolater. Worship demons and have your heart's desire. At the very heart of this is the question of what kind of a king Jesus will be. And by the way, I hear some politicians speaking this way. You have too. They say you have to give up on some of your principles to get into power. But lest we're too condemning, haven't we all done the same? Have you ever sacrificed obedience to God to get what you want? You seek to fill the void in your soul and you embrace the arms of another man's wife. You wanted your way, and so you have slandered a man or a woman who stood in your way. You wanted riches now, so you took some unethical shortcuts. Don't you see what you've done? You've worshipped before Satan's throne. You've become a worshiper of demons, an idolater. Satan is always whispering, worship me. I'll give you what you long for. You need love and food and friendship and significance and the ability to make a difference. And Satan says, I offer all of that. Come and worship, and you'll receive your heart's desire. See, at this moment, Jesus becomes genuinely angry. And in his anger, he's still meditating on Deuteronomy, and this time on Deuteronomy 6.13. And so, in Matthew 4.10, we read, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus knows that idolatry is the ultimate evil. There can be nothing you do more heinous than to find your pleasure in anything other than God. At this point, Matthew adds, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I find an irony here. At the second temptation, when Satan promised Jesus that the angels would protect him as he fell those 300 feet from the temple, Jesus resisted him, and now having entrusted himself to trusting in God, the angels come and minister to him. At the heart of all temptation is the desire to have something which in itself can be good. Think of it this way. The man or woman who embraces a sexual relationship outside of marriage wants something that in itself can be good. Sex is good because God actually made it. God also created intimacy and tenderness and the sharing of lives. The question really is, who will you trust? Yourself? Satan? Will you demand that God prove to you his intentions? And that brings us back to a question I had initially addressed. 
Why did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to a place where he allowed Satan to tempt him? And why does God allow us to be tempted and not remove us from the hour of temptation? All temptation provides us with many benefits. How you respond is a mirror to your own soul. And once you realize how sinful you are, if you do this thing right, it can drive you to dependence on God. And this is the key. If you do it right, it will drive you to the only place where victory is found. Jesus prevailed by reading, meditating, and relying on what God had said in Scripture. And if that's how the Son of God prevailed, then why is it that many of us face our greatest challenges while being ignorant of this book? Right now, you're facing the greatest temptations any man or woman can face, and some don't even know what those temptations are. But they are. Number one, trust yourself. Number two, make God prove he's worthy of your trust. And number three, become an idolater. And the only way you'll prevail is the same way Jesus did. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. John, thanks so much for the message today, and what a powerful passage of Scripture to end on. As you were talking about these temptations, I was uh, thinking about them myself and how much they apply, but I also was thinking about the very unique temptations that I face in my life. And as we go through day to day, John, how would you suggest we deal with them? Now, outside of what I've already said, I want to add something that I think is significant for all of us facing temptation. Sometimes we approach temptation thinking that the temptation is larger than I can bear, but it's never the case. The scripture has promised that God will always provide a way of escape. I think we need to enter into all seasons of temptation asking God how he might provide power for us, what's the resources available from the Holy Spirit, what scriptural passages might become profound in my life. I mean, are there seasons of self-examination? All these things, I think, provide us with the power that we need to sustain ourselves in these times. And isn't it somewhat about experiencing God's faithfulness as well, recognizing that we can look back on how God has carried us through temptation, and it allows us to trust Him even that much more the next time? Yeah, isn't that a, isn't that a fact? I mean, our experience in God is so great. It's such a, a, a learning tool for all of us. Um, I, I just wanted to add one more thing, Ben, and that has to do with the fact that we've all fallen into sin. And we ought to remember 1 John 1, 9 here, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's not despair when we have failed. Thanks so much for your message today, John, and we look forward to all that you have to share with us tomorrow as we continue in the book of Matthew. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh Again, Truth, bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.com.
www.thebibleproject.ca